It's the Stazapod. It's the middle of August. Is summer coming to a close? Maybe. It's still hot out, I'll tell you that much. What do I have for you in terms of news? Not much. Still waiting on Diver. Hopefully, that's going to be here beginning of September. Along with that, likely, will be the Card Slicer campaign goods. So it's looking increasingly and increasingly likely that these two items will ship out together, which will totally fulfill all of my pre-order obligations. And then we wipe the slate clean, then we can head into the rest of the year. That's very exciting. I know there are quite a few people clamoring for card slicers. Uh, I've taken quite a few requests for additional sets and things like that. Uh, We have done the first final pass on the MoFo's 18 card set. Um, We should be sending that off to the printer in the next couple days. Uh, Right now, the printer is taking about three to four months for uh, all their projects. Um, I could choose to sort of pay a premium to expedite this order, but uh, not yet sure if I'm gonna do that for the MoFo set. Um, in all likelihood, I think a reasonable time frame would be that at DesignerCon in November, which at this point I'm intending on going to, um, I think we will debut the MoFo's Card Slicer 18 card set there, as well as uh, potentially a Bugwing debut. So that's pretty exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Also worth noting, August 25th at Dogwood in Beacon, New York, Z-Star 7 is playing their next live show. I'm very excited about that. And then I believe we have another show in September. This is on September 14th, heading back to Happy Valley, where we had Toy Pizza Con. They loved this so much, they invited us back. We're going to be doing a small set on September 14th. Again, Beacon, New York. So uh, if you're local, you got two options for coming, hanging out, chilling with Z-Star 7. We might even have some merchandise to debut at these shows, so probably worth checking out. Now I'm going to give you a quick watching, listening, playing, which I I like to make a note in my various sketchbooks, what I'm watching, what I'm playing, what I'm listening to, to kind of lock these moments in time. So right now, I'm watching Sandman on Netflix. Uh... Didn't, I, I never really read Sandman comics. I'm aware of the sort of larger universe of the character. Um, this show is pretty damn good, I gotta say. I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. It took a while to kind of hook me, but I think largely it works because the lead character is really fantastic, and I'm coming off of watching Irma Vep, in which that character is a star, and, um, you know, he's just, I think, a good actor. He's got a great charisma to him. So, very much enjoying that. Hopefully this season ends on a high note. Listening to brand new single from Mars Volta, Vigil, sounds very much unlike anything else Mars Volta has done. It sounds almost like an AM pop ballad, but I really like the song. It's, it's bored its way deep into my brain, so I encourage people to check that out. Also, if you're a patron, I posted a playlist of uh, some of my favorite At The Drive-In, Sparta, and Mars Volta songs put together in somewhat chronological order. So uh, if you don't know anything about those various incarnations of these musicians, uh, go check out that list. It's a good primer for the larger world of uh, this type of music. Finally, what am I playing? I'm playing Doom Eternal on Switch. This is largely because I picked up the Doom Marine, uh, Doom Guy, from McFarlane. I believe it's a McFarlane.com exclusive. 
And this figure is awesome. This is the Doom Marine I've wanted since I was a little kid. I tried customizing one out of G.I. Joe's uh, with pretty limited success. But a fantastic figure, and it really made me appreciate uh, what I love about Doom. And I said, you know, I tried Doom Eternal when it came out. I didn't really connect with it. Now it's on Switch and it's on sale. I'm going to give it another go. And I'm glad I did because it is a pretty chaotic and pretty fun game. Uh, a little bit tedious in terms of having you have to make uh, really seemingly impossible jumps during certain levels that you just have to kind of go through over and over again. But tedium aside, uh, pretty fantastic play experience, and I would recommend people pick that up, especially if you can take advantage of the Switch sale, which I'm not sure if it's still going on or not. So that's everything top of mind for me. Uh, that is your intro. We're going to move right into questions. Uh, if you want to ask a question, I highly recommend you become a member of patreon.com slash jessedastasio and uh, add to our group. I think you'll like it. It's a lot of fun. Good community. So without further ado, it's time for questions. Okay, to start off, we're going to our top secret Discord, available only to patrons, and we got a question from Vlad Bad. How do you gauge how long to iterate and refine a piece without either burning out or abandoning it or overworking it? I'm stuck on a more ambitious drawing that I have the line work done for, but I can't bring myself to color it. This may be more of an issue since I'm only making it for myself. I don't have external pressures like a deadline or a client. Uh, this is a, a fantastic question. This is a good question to kick off today's Q&As. Um, what I want to push back on here is there's a couple assumptions with this question that I think are actually the bigger issue. And I don't, I certainly don't fault uh, our friend Vladimir the Badimir for this. This is a easy trap that I think most artists fall in by default. Uh, quick sidebar though, I really want to shout out Vladimir the Badimir and his really miraculous drawings. Um, he sort of became a squire and would share his very early sketches. He has kept up on that process uh, diligently for what feels like, I, I would say, more than a year, maybe two years. And uh, this includes supplementing his learning by going to life drawing classes. And uh, now he's cranking out these really beautiful pieces of work with, uh, you know, not just um, nice line work, but also really beautiful watercolors. And I, I think that in many ways, what Vladimir has done here is the sort of ultimate goal of the Brotherhood of the Squires of the Slice. And that is to encourage each other, to share our work with each other, and ultimately progress in front of each other. You know, all of us are kind of tinkering and laboring with our creative projects. And we have a really great community for sort of getting feedback and sharing that work and getting accolades and, and staying in the game. So I do want to shout out his efforts because I think it's a really great example of what our community does when it's functioning in the best way possible. So that aside, let's talk about the preconceived notions within the structure of this question. And that is that things like burnout or overworking or uh, a piece being done are truths, which I push back on. I, I think if you can 
realign your perspective to understand that no peace is ever done and that burnout or writer's block or putting a piece down for a year is part of the process of creating art. And these might feel like negative events within the process of being an artist, but they are not. They are part of the entire experience. If you can accept the assumption that a piece is never done, that art never has a finite end, then that alleviates all the pressure of not getting it completed within a set amount of time or not, you know, putting enough hours into it. The art has to work for you, you know? So I think these arbitrary ideas are certainly the default perceptive of somebody with artistic pursuits, but they're all completely fabricated. They are constructs that do not apply to the reality of being an artist. I think in some ways, like the language of writer's block, deadlines, um, you know, abandoning pieces, overworking pieces, these are all like, you know, it's all language of the superstructure of global capitalism, right? And it all has underpinnings in like hustle culture. And I think that, you know, that is, like I said, the default shaping of people alive in this period of time. But I really try to sort of urge people away from that and instead look at art as a phenomenon, a force of nature that doesn't start or stop. You just kind of come into it and come in contact with it at certain times and at certain times you don't. We can, you know, we can make the analogy that it is like the weather. And uh, sometimes you're outside and you feel the breeze, you feel the inspiration for the piece, you are connected to it. Uh, and then other times the wind is too crazy and it's raining out. So you have to go inside and you have to take yourself out of that force of nature. Uh, but that's okay, you know, sort of making an egress and then submerging yourself back into it is part of the process and it can take years, it can take decades. Um, it's all okay. Being an artist is also cumulative. It is not about a single defining piece, however much the market sort of want to portray an artist's output based on just, you know, smash hit after smash hit, that's completely fabricated as well. Um, an artist and their work is their entire lifespan. And it, it largely incorporates things we will never see as the public or as fans of the artist. So you sort of have to look at the entire process and understand that like moods come and go, ideas come and go, inspiration ebbs and flows. Uh, you know, that this is sort of the reality and the parameters of making art. And I, I think just accept it, accept that there are some pieces that will stretch 10 years before you figure out what it is it needs. Um, I mean, I still to this day am tinkering with childhood drawings or, you know, very bad thumbnails of comic strips I wanted to do. And I'll continue to work on these for the rest of my life. Maybe some people get to see them at some point, maybe not. But all of that is good. It's all part of the overall oeuvre, if you will. Um, so I don't feel necessarily negativity if I take an entire week and I'm just working on the business side of things and I don't pick up my sketchbook at all. I don't produce anything. Uh, normal combat 
book two is taking a very long time, obviously, but it's working for me. I'm not working for it. So I may have a flash of inspiration. I may get back to it. I may type a couple chapters and then I may decide to only play music, you know, in my spare time for an entire week. Uh, and both those things are equally valid in the creative process. So if you feel burnt out, if you feel like abandoning something, if you feel the danger of overworking something, you can just say to yourself, those aren't real things. Uh, you can get burned out on a piece. The piece still exists. You're not legally, you know, uh, prohibited from going back to it in a year or two years time. Uh, if you feel like abandoning peace, you should absolutely abandon a piece. But again, like the, the, the word selection is indicative of the emotion. Abandoning a piece to me is just, hey, I'm taking my time with it. I'm stepping away from it. I'm going to do something else. And as far as overworking a piece, I mean, you will overwork every piece by the time you're hopefully 100 years old, right? Uh, I continue to tinker with uh, stuff from 20 years ago that I don't know if it will ever be quote unquote done, but it is sort of something that draws my attention and, and compels my hand to continue to finesse or change or manipulate. So I hope this information helps. I would just say throw out those preconceived notions. Uh, the art is here for you whenever you want it. And, uh, you know, there those constructs I don't think are very helpful for uh, artists, you know, much like myself. Okay, hopping over to patreon.com slash Stasio for the official patron questions of this week. We start with Val Verde. I know you spoke about Diver last week, and let's talk about him some more, shall we? Are you waiting until you get the divers in hand to decide how to release them, or have you decided beforehand what divers will initially go out? As in, do you already have an idea of which ones you want to give to backers, which designer figures, if any, you want to incorporate into that? Which you want to save for general sale, if singles or double backers will get a chance to purchase what four-piece backers receive, etc., etc. Not asking for specifics, of course, just whatever you want to share of how you think you may go about staging it. Very good, very thorough question. Um, so, I guess the answer is the, the vast majority of the diver production order is already predestined for certain slots. Now, there are slots that uh, I had to sort of just decide prior to ordering these figures where they were going to go. So, obviously, we know four figures are going out to campaign backers. We know that two of those are fully painted and two of those are material style, as is with all of our sort of crowdfunding campaigns. So, right there, we got four styles that are taken care of. Uh, I have, you know... I've confirmed that there will be a diver in action figure of the Millennia Club. That should be no surprise to anybody. Obviously, the club is always going to be a launching board for new figures. So, you know, that gives us five styles that are spoken for. Um, I, I guess what I can say is that, like, I know where 75% of divers are going. And they have very specific roles to play and very specific timetables in which they will go out to the public. 
Uh, and then I have for myself, you know, another 25-30% that uh, I can decide at will where they will be. Th this is the biggest order I've ever placed. That's part of the reason it's taking so long, you know, to sort of cross, cross the finish line. Uh, but I do like to leave myself a little bit of leeway in terms of, you know, having a few styles that are not predestined, that can, uh, if I need to scrap a figure and utilize parts across the board for a lot of different stuff, I have the option to do that. I think it's, it's always good to have one figure in an assortment that is designated for that. It, it's, it's been super helpful for me. As people have probably noticed, the frequency of drops has uh, really slowed down. And there's been a couple reasons for that. I think we talked about it as this was initially taking shape. But the biggest one was, of course, uh, it being summertime. And I like to do as little work as possible <laughs> when I can. Um, and I think also we can see uh, in all of your lives, you're out, you're going on vacation, you're having fun, you're going to the beach, you're all over the place. We don't really want to be in front of our computers waiting for a drop every single week. Um, so, you know, that's a big portion of this, and I've been allowing myself the time to kind of uh, enjoy that and not have such a breakneck speed. Uh, the other factor is, of course, I'm doing client work again. I find it very fulfilling. I'm very well compensated. And, uh, you know, that's been a really nice change for me. It's allowed me to switch gears and sort of help this bigger project for a brand hundreds and hundreds of times the size of Knights of the Slice uh, figure out key issues in the marketplace and uh, globally. So that's very exciting. I like doing that work. I like it a lot more than I thought I would, you know, coming off of two, three years of just working on my own stuff. Uh, but I, I feel privileged to be able to work on these other projects. And, um, you know, so far it's, it's good and very fulfilling. So obviously, a lot of my bandwidth is focused on this larger client project. It doesn't make sense for me in a monetary sense to be sort of busting my ass every single four or five days, you know, uh, shipping out figures from a drop when I have this client that is sort of paying me X times more than I make doing e-commerce. Uh, you know, it just like... There's a, a sort of value you have to put on your time and uh, it has to make sense where you're, you're sort of burning your calories. If there's a sort of third reason for, you know, going at a slower pace, it is also that we are in a very real recession and people have had to drop out, people have had to switch to a lower tier, people are spending less, uh, people, you know, there's less patrons. Like, I've seen it across the board in every different line of work I do, and also being part of the Patreon Ambassador program, uh, you know, you get to compare notes with other creators, and it's the same for everybody. Luxury goods are not really high on most people's lists at this moment, and toys are a luxury good. So that's a big digression, but I think it's, it's interesting and it's related to uh, my planning and how I sort of make decisions and things like that. Um, Will there be chances for people that only backed one figure or two figures to back the four pack, things like that? I'm, uh, my sort of concrete plan is to get the goods here 
and to pack everything up, make sure I have enough, do a final count of what the excess is, and then whatever's left over I will put into the store for public release. Um, there's not a lot of it. You know, with Crow and Send 5, we were in a boom year, uh, economy was doing great, people were spending like crazy on e-commerce, so I took very large positions on the inventory for both those characters. Um, that is not the case for Diver. There's going to be some scarcity with, uh, you know, how his campaign extras are put out there. There's not going to be an abundance that's in store forever. I think if, if anything, if you looked at how the early bird Diver went very quickly, I think that's a good indicator of whatever extra merchandise there may be, how that is sort of embraced by people. At this point, there have been two different additional sales opportunities for patrons with Diver, with both the, I mean, really three, if we want to think about it. There was uh, another offer for the four-pack from the campaign for late patrons to get on board. A lot of people took advantage of that. We also did an accessory pack, which a lot of people took advantage of. And then finally, the early bird offer, which went out to patrons, uh, including quite a few patrons getting one for free just by entering a giveaway. So I think that my next path is to just do a public sale on the excess goods that uh, are available after I handle campaign fulfillment. Um, it's also worth noting, as I've said many times, the quantities for Diver will be much smaller than they were for, for Sen and Chromega. So what you're likely to see are new diver styles appear relatively quickly and then sell out quickly with a new style following it up shortly thereafter. I'm not looking to build evergreen styles as much as I as was a priority in previous years. In order to continue doing that, I need the economical picture to be better for everybody and uh, I don't foresee that happening in the near future. So uh, it was a a worthy goal to have one style of every figure always in stock in the store, but my priorities have shifted and we are going closer to a sort of, you know, a character maybe in stock for 24 to 48 hours and then we just move on and we get to the, you know, the next new figure. Um, so I know all that is very long-winded and a digression, but hopefully that's interesting enough uh, information for you. Next up, people are feeling the urge for more Verkill. Let's hop in with a question from Charlie Pope. How do you decide which characters get full stories, like Rex, Alexander, Azulado, and which characters just get flavor text to go with the figure release? Zog, Neostar, Catclaw, etc. I love both, as the flavor text story really adds to the world building, but sometimes would love to see some of these stories be expanded. Uh, side question for this, if you have the time. Will Verkill appear in fully fleshed out stories or remain a flavor text story character? Uh, I'm sure there's a better term than flavor text. I think flavor text perfectly encapsulates what you're getting at and, and is an industry term. So I think that's a, a good way to put it. There are two determining factors in which characters get full stories and which characters get sort of mini stories or story prompts, as I uh, sometimes will refer to them as. Uh, the biggest predictor of that is just spare time. 
like how much spare time do I have before a release uh, and how much of my free time can I sort of dedicate to writing these stories. The second factor is my personal affinity or inspiration for said characters or the, the overwhelming urge to commit this character to a bigger stage. It takes a very long time to sort of do long-form stories, you know, whether it's something like Turbo Atoll, which I think probably took about two years to thread together, or even Normal Combat 1, the uh, Reforging Olympus story. Those are months and months of work. Uh, Normal Combat 2 is proving itself to also be months and months of work. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's really a matter of how much can one guy do? In addition, I also have this, this consideration, which, uh, you know, I think is just more of like a personal preference, but, you know, I, I, I always think of Knights of the Slice and the bigger lore as being something that's shared, right? Not dictated. Um, now for a character like Rex Gannon or say Harley and Marley, I'm pretty clearly dictating who these characters are, what emotions they have, how they would react in a situation. And then I'm shipping these figures out for you guys to sort of act that out. Um, in the case of smaller or minor or supporting characters, I kind of want you guys to figure out the larger story for these people. And, you know, that's another thing that I love about the community is people doing customs, people doing photo stories, snapping pics, sharing them. Like, that is part of the ritual of, you know, being a Squire of the Slice. Um, and in some ways, if I clearly defined every single character with a mini novel, um, I think it would take away some of the ability of, you know, the squires to articulate those stories for themselves. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, there's a very nice retro collection Darth Vader figure that looks like the old Kenner three and three quarter inch figures I had when I was a kid. And if I see that Darth Vader, I'm going to pick him up and I'm going to buy him and it's going to be, you know, a happy five minutes in my life. But there is no story I can tell with that figure in which he is not Darth Vader and all of the baggage of the Star Wars movies and media aren't already attached to him. So in some ways, I, I don't want that to necessarily be the experience for the end consumer. Now, granted, Rex Gannon is fairly generic in many ways, right? He is a, I guess for lack of a better word, word, he's a sort of international spy or engages in espionage or goes on missions. And with that prompt, you can kind of create so many different scenarios uh, for Rex Gannon in your own home. You can't really do that with Darth Vader, uh, you know, because there is so much just attached to it. There's so much already clearly defined. Even, you know, I did not watch Obi-Wan, but I had many people on long car rides give me the entire breakdown of Obi-Wan. It doesn't sound like it's a show for me. Uh, but even still, this further proves my point that, like, there's so little that can be done with a character like Darth Vader, and it keeps getting compounded and more complex and more retconned as the years go on and on. So, um, you know, there is a sort of... I want to leave space for the end consumer in many regards. Um, so I, I think these two factors, you know, my limited time 
and then also wanting to have that space for people to be creative with their action figures. Those kind of equal, you know, why there are some stories that are longer and why certain characters get a sentence or maybe a paragraph of text. As far as Verkill goes, I mean, you know, I think he's gotten a lot of real estate dedicated to him, far more than other characters. Uh, and he certainly, his story is not over. He has many more roles to play. Um, but this seems like a good place to segue into our next question, which is also about Count Verkill. From Matt Reed, are we likely to see a fully painted Verkill at some point? Unless I'm mistaken, there hasn't been one with any paint apps on the body or limbs thus far. Um, yes, I would like to see a fully painted Verkill happen. I am in the sort of design stages of that now. This is probably not going to be anything that comes out this year. This is likely a 2023 style figure. Um, you know, I just haven't done him. You know, simple as that. I, I think largely because he was released in tandem with the Cherubium heads and the Poncho, both of which have paint apps. Uh, those sort of dictated the character in many respects because there was a lot to go off of. And I think that also, you know, I was trying to meet a deadline with Verkill, uh, which I did successfully do for Action Figure, the, the Month Club back then. Uh, and so adding additional spray apps and, and sort of fit testing and doing all the stuff that a fully painted figure requires would have pushed back our entire production. And I strategically decided not to do that because we had ponchos and we had the animal heads to kind of add a, a bit to this single character. Uh, but now that all that's out of the way, uh, it is one of my top priorities for sure, certainly moving into 2023. And um, I already have some ideas. I have some color tests uh, I've sort of put together in Photoshop. So I, I would say, um, yeah, I think next year we're going to see a proper fully painted Verkill. And uh, I'm excited about that. Okay, next up, brand new patron. I think I might have shouted him out last episode, but Roan Hubick is here, folks, and he's got a question. Hello, Jesse. I just got my first 3D printer and was wondering if you have any suggestions for cool creators slash artists that sell printable files. It's a resin printer for reference. Also, can't wait to get my first ever Night of the Slice order directly from the source. I can't believe I won the diver. Super fun and made my week. Thank you, Roan. This is another success story of the Brotherhood of the Squires of the Slice. I know it sounds like a cult, but it's not, and legally, I have to say, it's not a cult. Um, so there are a ton of uh, different types of 3D artists on Patreon that offer all sorts of different stuff. Primarily, you're going to probably have the most success if you look up uh, uh, miniature gaming and things like that. That's where I have found the large um, sort of focus to be on this platform. Um, I, I don't really, I wish I had specific artists to point you towards, but because my 3D printer is currently out of whack, uh, I'm not as absorbed into that world as uh, I have been in the past. So I would just say look on Patreon, do some searches, look for 3D files, look for uh, gaming miniatures, and you're going to see so many different artists that uh, can sort of meet your demand. 
I would also say go back and look at earlier Patreon posts on my Patreon. There are a bunch of 3D files that have been made available in the past. Uh, I do actually owe patrons a new 3D file. I'm going to get on that right away. Uh, I stopped sort of uploading them because the engagement on 3D files was incredibly low. I think I had four or five people that actually downloaded and utilized these files. So, um, you know, I would love to see that segment of our business uh, grow because I think it's a pretty fascinating technology. But um, I have had to scale back my plans on that just due to the really, really low engagement that that happens with it. So um, hopefully that will help you in getting some nice files to start testing out on your 3D printer. And it is a hell of a lot of fun. You know, that's a great subsection of this hobby to get into. So uh, I wish you well in the endeavor. Next up is JT, Card Slicer's question. Mostly, do I understand the rules correctly? Do I only need a max of 20 dice for the game, five for each stats on the three cards as counters, and five to roll for my attack? Um, that is certainly how I play. So, uh, you know, I would definitely recommend that. I'm gonna repost the rules to Card Slicer so everybody has that document. It is a living document, so changes and updates will happen from time to time. But uh, yes, I typically uh, set about having a match of card slicers with at least 20 die set and ready to go. Uh, you can also, you do not have to use die as your hit markers. You can use anything under the sun, a coin. You can use, a, you know, a precious pearl. You can use pebbles you find in a graveyard. Um, you're not sort of limited to using die to mark off the hits, but they are sort of uh, perfectly sized for that. So um, that's how I play. People are welcome to sort of keep track of their damage however they see fit. Next up from Thomas Bucci, can we get a two-pack Contra homage set from Radic and Lince Runbro? Um, you know, I, I don't think I have much interest in doing that, largely because NECA has already done that, and uh, I think they did a pretty good job on their two-pack. But I suppose over a long enough timeline, there will probably be substantial parts in which people can build their own Contra homage in any way they see fit. Thomas Jante wants a Zed Star 7 rig update. So um, for those who have never seen Zed Star 7 live or watched a live stream, uh, Zed Star 7 functions as both a trio with my friends Dan and Brendan, uh, but also I play solo as well. And I have cultivated um, a one-man band for somebody who doesn't know how to play music or read music. So that means there are a lot of very interesting, very archaic, very weird synthesizing devices all uh, sort of linked together on this enormous pedal board case. Uh, and that is how I sort of generate music. And because this is uh, a link of multiple machines, I can swap out machines at any time and have a very different uh, sort of arrangement of sound making devices whenever I see fit. So I have just uh, started from scratch, wiped the slate clean and rebuilt a new version of the rig for our upcoming show on August 25th. And uh, there are some weird additions to it. Now, if you're, you're curious, you can go see a photo on uh, Instagram at ZStar7. I posted an image and I tagged all the sort of manufacturers of the devices I have linked together. Uh, as always, my Chaosolator Pro 
that is the heart and soul of a Z Star 7 performance and the majority of our songs. It provides the sort of rhythm, the drums, the bass, and some level of, of uh, sort of keys and effects. Um, from there, I have a walrus pedal, which is a very robust device that I still don't quite understand. But when I press the button, it sort of bit crushes everything. It, it shrinks down the sound. It makes it sound like it's underwater. It makes it sound like it's in outer space. It sort of uh, is really good for intros to songs and then breaks in the middle of a song. Uh, the newest edition, which I'm kind of on the fence about trying live. It's a, it's a bit of a tricky device, but um, it is called the Wave Drum, and this is also made by Korg, the same people that make the Chaos Letter Pro, wonderful Japanese company. The Wave Drum is a single pad that you tap and it makes drum sounds. You know, pretty self-explanatory. But depending on where you tap on the drum, you can elicit different sounds. You can get a hi-hat, you can get a bass drum, you can get sound effects. Um, I like things that are tactical. You know, I like to tap things, I like to hit things, I like to smack things, and I enjoy getting musical notes from the physicality of touching various things. So the wave drum is a, is a really great device, but it's very tricky. Uh, it does have a recorder on board, which is interesting because you can sort of record little sequences and they will loop, but there's no timer or anything. So if you fuck up your loop, it's going to sound bad over and over again. Um, the other tricky part is that there's no way to sort of sync this device with any of the other devices. So I am kind of working the timing out by ear, which can sort of, it, it can be very, very tricky. Uh, if you're off by a fraction of a second, the first couple loops might sound okay, but then your beat, you know, becomes out of sync and you start to hear a, you know, a dissonance between the various instruments making noise. So it's a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, I'm still kind of experimenting with what this build is going to be for the next live show. Um, but, uh, you know, it's ever-evolving. It, it's a fascinating process. I know this is probably boring for a lot of people, but I know also we got some dedicated gearheads and music makers in the audience. Um, speaking of which, big shout-out to our new patron, The Craftsman. Can you believe it? One of my favorite Patreon creators. He's here. Maybe he's listening to this right now. Uh, the Craftsman really nudged me down the avenue of making my own music. Uh, originally, I would do karaoke live streams by myself. I moved out to the Sticks, and uh, my solution for all the karaoke clubs I miss in New York City was to just do karaoke by myself and stream it on Instagram. Uh, I also didn't want to pay for a YouTube premium membership, so there would be commercials in between the songs I was singing to on YouTube. And in order to mitigate that, I had to find some way to have music in between as I was queuing up a new song or searching for a song or things like that. So um, having a synthesizer or making music myself as that little interlude seemed like a good solution. And it was Craftsman's video featuring the teenage engineer Pocket Operator that uh, pushed me towards my first um, sort of new 
instrument purchase. And it really opened up a whole world beyond that. And I actually, I, I don't really use the pocket operator very much these days. Um, all the teenage engineering stuff is a bit obtuse. And, uh, but, but really, it was that sort of video that he did. I think he covered a White Stripes song using uh, his voice and um, the vocal sampler. And uh, I was like, damn, this is, this is great. I gotta, I gotta learn how to do this. And all these years later, here we are. So, big welcome to Craftsman. Thank you for the question, Thomas Jonte. Go follow ZStar7 on Instagram and you can check out a picture of the current rig. Next up from Brett Barnacle, any idea when we will see a new Sen 5 style? I know you're overloaded with diver production. I'm just chomping at the bit for a blue collar construction worker themed Sen. Um, you know, I went heavy on Sen and I went heavy on Chromega. And I think in all likelihood, both those styles are going to be in a bit of a cool off period. Uh, I believe I have one more Chromega. Um, to release at some point. This is a material style, but it will likely manifest as a material plus. Um, and then as far as Sen goes, people have kind of pieced together that there is a uh, a Franken-sliceable full Sen based on the action figure of the millennia from this month and some previous these pieces. Uh, this Sen was codenamed Scrap. And you can kind of understand why he got split up and utilized to create many different characters uh, in his livelihood. Um, at some point, I will make that scrap sen available once I know I don't need any more of his parts. And there may even be a small amount of him fully put together in the bag, which might be interesting for some people who uh, want to collect him that way. So, uh, that's definitely on the horizon. I think, uh, more to the point, both those styles, they were our new figures last year. They're in a bit of a cool-down stage. I would think that, um, Sen will probably make an appearance next year in the club, assuming I do the club again. And, uh, Crow, you know, could be a club figure, could be just a store release. But both of those are going to go the way of something like Hob, or Vector Jump, wherein I will do a new single style every year or so, but they won't be sort of regular heavy output for those figures, uh, if that makes sense. Next up, a question on our Discord from Jay Ortiz 3 On the last pod, you explained the meaning behind a Z-Star 7 song, uh, Not My Enemy, if I remember correctly. That The song was actually Heard You Were Doing Well. Um, that was really interesting. Is there another Z Star 7 song with a meaning behind the title? Uh, I would say that all of them have meaning, right? Uh, but there is a sort of varying level of how much I know what that meaning is. Uh, because all of these songs are improvised on the spot. I'm not jotting down lyrics or anything. Uh, I don't come in with sheet music. We just go in the studio and we create them. And... I remember reading about Frank Black of the Pixies and how that was his songwriting process. He would just blurt out things as they came to him. And so 
There is no forethought, there's no planning involved in writing these songs, but rather the mood of the music itself sort of pulls the lyrics out of me, in a way. And sometimes I understand the subconscious context of that, and sometimes I do not. And uh, I may listen to a song that we wrote together, and for months and months it doesn't mean anything, and then suddenly it clicks and I understand what I was trying to say. It's almost like I'm sort of possessed during the process of playing music. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to answer necessarily what other songs may or may not be based on. But uh, I'm scrolling through our SoundCloud page right now, which you can all access for free, soundcloud.com slash ZStar7. You can listen to, I think at this point, over 150 songs, no charge whatsoever. Go ahead and do it. Um, let's find one, Little Bowtie Dandy. <laughs> okay, this was a, uh, this was, we uh, wrote the song at Sugar Mountain Studios in Brooklyn, a very high-tech, very professional uh, sort of setting. And uh, this is about Tucker Carlson. And if you listen to lyrics, it sort of makes sense. I don't know why I was compelled to sing about him, but uh, he popped in my head as I was listening to this sort of tune we were laying down, and the rest of the song just filled itself in so very easily. So um, that's, a, that's a good example of a pretty literal song where the meaning it can be gleaned easily. Something like Blinded by Lights, which I think is probably our hit single. I think it's like the most user-friendly song that you can listen to, and it's not abrasive, it's not scary. Uh, there's a fun little beat to it. Blinded by Lights is based on Demi Lovato and her experience, her professed experience with UFOs and aliens and being abducted and things like that. Um, so, you know, sometimes... I just go into the studio and I am a sort of repository for all these weird podcasts I've listened to, all of these um, YouTube videos I've consumed, all the news I've seen flash before my eyes. They all sort of sit in this cup of ball and then are plunged out of me once music is, is being played. And so you get little bits and pieces of things that are just stuck in my maw for some reason. I read a great quote that I think it, uh, sort of relates to this in, in some fashion. Uh, Gary Panter, who, um, he is a sort of underground comics artist. Most people would probably recognize his work from Pee-wee's Playhouse. He was part of that cadre of artists that, uh, you know, created and formed the look of the sets and the characters and things like that, along with the great Wayne uh, White. Um, he posted something on Instagram, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said that art should be a protest and a wish at the same time. And that really hit me. That really, like, crystallized a lot of things I had been struggling to understand. Good art, I agree, is a, it's a protest against current conditions, and it is a wish. You are broadcasting what change you would like to see in the world. And I think that the most effective art are both those things simultaneously. So a lot of my songs, uh, I feel, are that sort of dual-edged blade. They are a protest against what I'm seeing, and they are a wish for different conditions. Um, 
And I think that really like that is the type of music I want to be making. That's the type of music I like to listen to. That's the type of art I like to consume. Not stuff that is sort of falsely transgressive or has no real value of its own other than to uphold the world as it is, just to reflect the conditions we see today. Uh, the stuff that really speaks to me gets to those two core ideas. A protest, a, a you know, a f expression of rage or dissatisfaction or displeasure, and then the solution to that, what, you know, what we would enact, what we want to press to change in the world so that, you know, the, the protest is uh, answered. I'll give you one final uh, sort of pretty literal song that's going on. Uh, a few podcasts ago, I talked about growing up with a father who was a cop and my feelings on policing, and I thought that this is it. I'm going to be canceled for for this, for sure. <laughs> like, I've, I've finally gone too far. Um, but I had many people, many patrons reach out and privately share their stories with me, and it was a phenomenal experience. Like, I, I'm so thankful for the people that took the time to compare notes with me, talk about either being a police officer or growing up in a household with police officers, or just general, uh, you know, brutality that they've faced at the hands of police. Um, the outpouring was, was pretty significant, and it seems to me like everybody has more or less the same experience, whether or not we can kind of speak to that publicly or not. And the song, Can We Get You Anything Else, is about exactly that. It is the never-ending budget of police who are buying military gear, who are buying APCs, who are buying uh, armor. They, they are militarizing themselves the way troops that we send into foreign countries are militarized and the repercussions of that, what that means. And ultimately, uh, is it making anything safer? Is it helping them be better police? Is it, you know, are we getting better results because of it? So without demystifying the entire catalog of songs, those are the ones that I think, you know, are interesting um, surface level things to kind of pick out. But once you understand this, I think you can go back and listen to almost any song and you might be able to glean an emotion or a feeling or a protest and a wish from what I've sort of automatically blurted out. You know, it's, it's a fascinating experience for me and uh, I'm always happy when people can kind of connect to the music as well. I think that just about does it for our questions today. Really fantastic ones. Thank you, everybody, for submitting. Uh, while I was recording this, I got a notification that Diver paint samples are on the way to me. And I even got some very early photography. Uh, not quite ready for prime time. I can't share them at this point. But that's all good news. That means Diver is nearing his production. And uh, hopefully... With a little luck and with no further delays, he will be out to everybody in short time. So fingers crossed on that. Very exciting. Very happy it uh, it sort of happened before I ended this Dostasipod so I can give you the first inside scoop. Thus concludes Dostasipod for this week. 
The only thing left to say is Peter out. Mediocre man. Mediocre man.